Okay, good morning, Boker Tov. First, uh, just housekeeping. This is uh, the last Parsha class for a little while. I'm going on my summer vacation uh, beginning next Sunday. So we'll take a break. I'm not sure if Rabbi Moskowitz will pick up the Parsha class, so please pay attention to the weekly and the Shul email to see if he's uh, picking it up or not. Otherwise, we'll continue at the end of August. So that doesn't mean that you're exempt from learning the Parsha during that time. It just means you're exempt from learning it with me. Okay, this week we have the uh, privilege and pleasure of a double parsha, Matos and Masay. We're completing the book of Bamidbar. It's a Chazak Shabbos, Chazak, Chazak, Venis Chazak, where we strengthen one another to move on to the next book and to continue this journey of uh, the Jewish people. Our learning this morning is for a Rufuah Shlema for all Chola Yisrael, complete and speedy recovery for all those who are ill. In particular, we continue to have in mind our beloved friend, Rabarach Tzvi Ben Rifka Bacha. Page 900 in the Earth Scroll Stone Chumash, beginning with Parshas Matos. As always, we'll give an overview of the Parshios, and then we'll go into the particular story. This week, we're going to analyze of B'nai God and Reuven and their uh, request and negotiation with Moshe and by extension with the Almighty. Parshas Matos begins with the laws of vows, vows and oaths of Nadarim and Shvuos. What's the difference between a neder and a shvua? A neder regards the chefza, the object. This object has the status of hektish. This object, through the neder, one can transform the status of an object. You can make that which is permissible forbidden. You can make that which is mundane sacred. Our words have unbelievable power. We can transform objects. You could take a perfectly kosher piece of chicken, and by taking a neder about the chicken, the neder becomes as forbidden for you as a piece of chazer, as a piece of pork. So intrinsically, the chicken's kosher, the pork is not kosher. Through our words, we can make the chicken exactly like a piece of pork. Rabbi Soloveitchik says, I know this is not timely, it's more timely than you think, but... Rabbi Soloveitchik says that's why we say Kol Nidre Yom Kippur night. Yom Kippur, uh, Kol Nidre Yom Kippur night is really very bizarre. We wear our kittel all white, we come to shul beginning to fast, we elevate ourselves, and what do we do? We convene this uh, court and we collectively release ourselves from our vows. Kol Nidre is a haunting melody of the Chazan puts us all in the mode and the mood for Yom Kippur. But if you look at the words, it's kind of a bizarre way to begin this holiest day on our calendar. All vows, all promises, all oaths, all that. What is, that's really how we're beginning? Rabbi Soloveitchik said, yes, because Yom Kippur is all about understanding the power of our words and taking seriously what we say. So when one contemplates and understands the power of a neder, a neder can transform an object. A shvua. It's not about the object, the shvu is about the gavra, it's about the person. So the difference between saying, this chair is forbidden to me, versus I am forbidden to get benefit from this chair. I'm not going to get into the lumdas right now, what's the difference between the chefza and the gavra, what's the difference if the emphasis is on the object or the person, but the parsha begins. And in this context, the parsha tells us that a, uh, a father, a husband have the ability to interact with their daughter or their wife's vows, to release them of their vow, and so on. You have two principles in order to release someone of their vow. You can find a Pesach, an opening, 
or you could be made for their vow, you could annul their vow. It would seem one is retroactive and one is going forward. It's not the case again. We're not getting into the details here. I'll just call your attention to a couple things. Every year, Parshas Matos, that strike me. One is in Pasuk Vav. And the same Pasuk appears later with the husband. A woman takes a vow. She says... This, uh, these potato chips are forbidden for me. I'm sick and tired of uh, not losing weight. I've been unable to get myself going, Weight Watchers or uh, whatever. And so the best way to do it is to take a vow, to put myself in a halacha category obligating me. So she takes a vow. Her father knows better. He's seen her take this vow several times. It never works out well. He's seen her attempt to diet several times. It never goes well. So immediately he releases her of that vow. He uses the mechanism to release her of the vow. And then she, not knowing that he released her of the vow, is tempted by that bag of potato chips. Mesquite barbecue lays deep fried. You see why I gave the example of potato chips. So uh, she is tempted by these potato chips. And she eats a potato chip. Does she need forgiveness? So technically, no. Technically, she's exempt. Why? Her father released her of the vow. If she were to stand before a court of strict justice, a lawyer could advance an argument on behalf, a great defense, and say, look at the timeline. Look at the chronology. Check the camera. Her father released her of the vow before she ate the potato chip. It is a cut and dry, clear case. The defense is compelling. She should be exonerated. No problem. Yet the Torah says, V'ashem yislach that she needs forgiveness from Hashem. Why does she need forgiveness from Hashem? So Rashi says, Says Rashi, the cases of a husband, she vowed to become a Nazir, a Nazir, you know, a woman could be a Nazir. Pasuk says in Parshas Naso, Isho Isha Kiidor Neder Lashem, something like that. A man or a woman who chooses to become a Nazir, a woman can also be a Nazir. So if she becomes a Nazir, her husband says, bad idea. He releases her a Nazirite vow. She then drinks wine, not knowing she was released. Says Rashi, she needs forgiveness. And deduces from the rabbis here that if such a woman needs forgiveness, when technically she did nothing wrong, then all the more so, people who did something technically wrong need that forgiveness. And it always bothered me, why does she need forgiveness? Don't we, isn't God a just God? If she technically did nothing wrong, then she did nothing wrong. Right? Wrong. Why? What do you see from this Rashi? Such a powerful message to me. What you see from this Rashi is, we are in a relationship with the Rebona Shalolam. Would a person get in an argument with their spouse and try to use the technicality to get off, you know, to explain, to try to exonerate themselves? Or is it the spirit of the relationship which counts? Is that what happens here? The spirit of the relationship. So let's say a man was prepared to be disloyal to his wife and act inappropriately, but it was a dark room and it turned out to be his wife. So when the lights go on, she's furious at him. She says, you thought I was someone else and you 
put this move on me. He says, but it was you in the end. What's the difference? How will that go over? She says, uh, he says, what do you mean? Let's go to court. I have the greatest offense. I did nothing wrong. You're my wife. You're not someone else. She said, it's the spirit of your intent that matters. You were prepared to violate the sanctity of our marriage. So technically, you lucked out and you got off. This is not about appearing before a judge. The judge lets you go. This is about a relationship that has a spirit. Vashem yislach lo. Vashem yislach lo. So even though technically you're right, she was released from the vow, she technically did nothing wrong, but when she ate the potato chip, when she drank the wine, when he did what he did, he thought he was violating a relationship, that too needs forgiveness. It's a very powerful insight into the nature of Torah and mitzvahs and our relationship with Hashem. It's not just about the technical. It's not about the minutia. It's not about advancing a defense on our own behalf. When we come on Yom Kippur, and frankly, these three weeks leading to Tisha B'av, which are also all about tshuva, from a very different direction and angle, right? The three weeks leading to Tisha B'av are all about doing tshuva from our lowly place. We spoke about last week or a couple weeks ago. We talked about shifla sa'adam and gadla sa'adam. One can approach character growth by thinking we're lowly and we're nothing. One can approach character growth by thinking, we're just a little bit below God, we're angels, look how great we are. Slabodka versus Navardic and Kelm. We talked about that last week or a couple weeks ago. You have to have the balance between the Bishvili Nivra Olam, the world was created for me, and on the other hand, I am lowly dust, I'm nothing and no when to take which petek out of, out of the pocket, which one needs the emphasis. That's why Korach was blind in one eye, Bilam was blind in one eye. If you lack perspective, if you don't have that balance between our lowliness and between our greatness. So the three weeks till Tisha B'av are returning to God, self-reflection, introspection, personal growth through shiflas Adam, unworthy. I sit low to the ground, I'm disheveled, I'm pathetic. I'm just pathetic. And then we transition after Tisha B'av, the Shiva de Nechemta, the seven weeks of the Haftorah of Consolation, carry us through to Rosh Hashanah, Elul, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. And there now, we approach God through Godless Adam. I'm angelic. I don't need food or drink. So Tisha B'av, I don't need or drink because I'm pathetic, I'm unworthy, I'm undeserving. I'm sitting low to the ground. I'm a gornished. Yom Kippur, I don't need or drink. The same behaviors, but not because I'm pathetic. I'm an angel. I'm wearing all white. I don't need food or drink. That's how great I am. The balance between between those two. So it's the nature is a relationship. I'm in a relationship with the Ribbono Shalom. Vashem it's not a technicality. I don't come before God as a judge, let me get off. Oh, so when I come, that's how I got into that. When I come, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, I don't come with my defense. I didn't sit down with my defense team. I've got the books open. I found a legal loophole. I have a technicality why it wasn't Lashonara. I have a technicality why it was okay to cheat on my taxes. I have a technicality why it was all right to eat without the bracha. I have a technicality why it was okay to sleep late and never come to shul. I don't come with this whole prepared defense because the nature of the relationship with Hashem, if you're trying to resolve an argument with your spouse, then you go to the core of the relationship. I never meant to hurt you. This is how I feel. This is how this makes me feel. You don't come and say, I thought about what you said to me and I came up with the following 10 reasons about why you're wrong 
and I looked into it, and technically what I did is not a problem. That's absurd. You're in a relationship. That's Vashem Yislachla. Technically you were off. That's nice, but that's not what a relationship's all about. I'll tell you one other example. I don't want to spend our whole time. I actually had a lot to cover. But then Siva Shalom, Salam Rebbe in last week's Parsha, he deals with that the punishment for the violation with Benos Moav was excessive to what the strict halacha should be. And from there he transitions to another question, which is, Torah, the Gemara tells us, why was the first base Amikdash destroyed? Because of violating the first, no, the big three. The first base Amikdash, Gilearai, Shvichas Damim, and Avodazara. Idolatry, promiscuity, and murder. Why was the second base Amikdash destroyed? Sinaschina, baseless hatred. Where does it say in Halacha that the punishment for baseless hatred is capital punishment? The death penalty. I understand the big three, Yarek Vel Yavor, cardinal sins. I understand you murdered, you get the death penalty. So a, a culture, a society, which had no boundaries, which was engaged in the three cardinal sins, God presses a hard reset, exiles us, kicks us out of his house, I understand. But ask the Salaam Rebbe, how could Sinas Chinam be parallel or tantamount to the big three? Where does it say it's a capital crime? Of course we avoid it. Of course, we have countless drushes about Avas Yisrael. You can't have sinas chinam. Where does it say sinas chinam? You hate a fellow Jew, we put you to death. It's parallel, the big three. So the Salaam Rebbe says, yeah, you're missing the point. When Hashem was choosing whether He wanted to live with us in the same house anymore, He wasn't making a choice based on the strict rules and regulations. He wasn't, he wasn't consulting the law books. It's a relationship. It's a relationship. So it has nothing to do with what's a capital crime, what's not a capital crime. Does this equal murder? It has to do with, in Hashem's eyes, He says, my children are in my house. I've been putting a roof over their head. I feed them, I clothe them, I pay for the technology, I pay for their monthly cell phone bill and over usage of data. I spoil them rotten, I give them everything. And all they do is fight. All they do is fight. The fact that they... Abuse me, I can get over. But the way they treat each other, I've had enough. So I've told them countless times. I've tried to punish them countless times. They just don't listen. I don't want to live in the same house as them. You're out. You're done. Go fight somewhere else. I'm not interested. And says the Son of Rebbe, it has nothing to do with the technical, where does it say in the Torah, that's in Eschinim, the punish. It has to do with Hashem's our father. We're his children. We couldn't get along. He was done. He had enough. He had enough of us. We're out. We're out. So even though it seems disproportional in terms of the nature of the indiscretion of the violation, it's not about the, the law book. It's about the relationship. It's about, it's about the relationship. You know, you have a child who makes a mistake concerning a, a law. So your kid came home and they got a speeding ticket. They got a parking ticket. Your child came home and they did something with the law. That's on the one hand. On the other hand... They're not talking to their sibling. Alienated, in a fight, divided, they haven't spoken in a year. Which one is the parent more upset about? Parking ticket, the speeding ticket, maybe even a DUI, or the fact that you don't talk to your sibling for a year, you can't visit each other's houses, you have nothing to do with each other. Strictly speaking, if you went before the judge and you said, my son has done two terrible things, DUI and he's not talking to his brother, what would the judge say? He'd laugh. 
not talking to his brother. I could care less. Where does it say in the American law you can't talk? You have to talk to your brother. Don't talk to your brother. But a DUI, speeding ticket, a parking ticket. But for the father, it's the opposite. I don't care what it says in the law book. The fact that you're not talking to your sibling, that's what I can't deal with. All right, the technical law, I can get over. I have remorse. So Vashem Yislach Law, all of this is in those three words. Vashem Yislach Law. It's about a relationship, not about technical law. True, she technically was exempt. She's exonerated. True, she was relieved of the vow at the moment she violated it. But she didn't know that. So when she ate the potato chip or drank the wine or did what she did, she did so in a violation of her relationship, her commitment to Hashem. And that's what this entire section is about. Possibly the Torah says here, we haven't even started the overview. Torah says, Lo yachel dvaro. Lo yachel dvaro. What is Lo yachel dvaro? Rashi says, whatever these words are, Lo yachel dvaro. Right, the whole essence of, the whole essence of this section of observing our vows, the laws of vows, how to be relieved of vows, is Lo yachel dvaro whose words elude me at the moment. Thank you. So Rashi says, What is lo yachel dvaro? Kamo lo yachalel dvaro. Lo yasa dvarav chulin. Lo yachel, yachel is the same root as the word chulin. Chol. Ben kodesh lechol. Words are sacred. Words have value. Pledges, commitments, promises mean something. You made a nether, you took a promise. Don't be, make it chulin. Don't profane yourself by being someone who cannot be taken at their word. Don't become someone whose pledge, whose promise, whose vow means nothing. Last Shabbos I republished something I had written several years ago about Jewish time. Jews are notoriously late. Jewish things start notoriously late. And uh, based on an article, a great article that had been in Forbes magazine, should be the opposite. Jews who value time as a precious commodity that's irreplaceable, time should mean something. But more than that, when we're supposed to meet someone somewhere, we're supposed to start something at a certain time, lo yachel dvaro. If we come late, if we start late, if we procrastinate, if we're lazy, even if we did nothing intentionally wrong, lo yachel dvaro, to violate that promise, that pledge, that commitment, meet you at that time, start at that time, we've profaned ourselves, we've made ourselves chulin. That means something. Lo yachel dvaro. That's the essence of the opening. Then we get to our revenge with Midian. Right in last week's parsha, it was the women of Midian who had seduced the men when Amalek couldn't defeat us militarily and Balak and Bilam couldn't defeat us spiritually. Where was our Achilles heel? Where was our weakness? When the women seduced the men, we have seen many, many great men, Jewish and non-Jewish, brilliant creative, charismatic, leaders, men of incredible accomplishment, who in that moment, that was the, the source of their downfall. So now, God calls for our revenge, which is, leads to another whole topic we're not going to get into today, which is the Jewish view of revenge. On the one hand, we have losikam velositor, we have two biblical prohibitions. On the one hand, we're not supposed to take revenge. On the other hand, we describe God as a vengeful God. We see that as a great virtue, a noble attribute of the Almighty, that He takes revenge, that He avenges what happens. In Avarachamim, Nikom Nikmazdam we call on God to take revenge. Here, on the bottom of page 902, Nikom Nikmaz Bnei Yisrael, 
God says to Moshe, it's time for revenge. You ready? Payback time. Midjan hit us on the Achilles heel. I made a great plague, if not for Pinchas' zealotry, bravery, and leadership. And now, it's payback time. So Moshe tells the people, It's time to arm ourselves. Form our army. Gird yourselves. Get ready, army. Get your weapons ready. We're going to take revenge against Midian. A thousand from a tribe, a thousand from a tribe. Why the, why the redundancy? The Medrash says, and Rav uh, Simcha Kohen Cook, Chief Rabbi of Rehovo, made that Medrash famous a few years ago. It seems like every other summer Israel's in a war. And it corresponds with this parsha Matos. So looking back at old Drushas, every other Drusha of every other year, Israel's in a war either in its southern border or its northern border, either with Hezbollah or with Hamas. It overlaps with this. And one of those summers, Rav Kook made this medrash popular, Elef Lamate, Elef Lamate, that for the thousand who go to war, there have to be a corresponding thousand who daven for them. For each soldier, there's someone who has their name, who thinks about them. Just because you don't go to war doesn't mean you're exempt from concerning yourself with those at war and the things that we have to do, which is also a theme of our Pasha. If we get to it, we'll get to it at the end. The whole story of Reuven and God, who want to remain east of the Yarday in the Jordan. And Moshe says, you're not going to go up and try to conquer the land? You're going to hang out in Boca while we put our kids in the IDF uniform on the front lines, risking their lives? And your kids are on Australia, whatever summer program, doing whatever they're doing? You feel exempt? You have no responsibility to the Jewish people and to Jewish destiny? It's the theme of both the beginning of this parsha and the end of the parsha, which we'll, which we'll come to. In the Rabbi Salavetsi Chumash, made it over 26 minutes without quoting the Chumash already. In the Rabbi Salavetsi Chumash, it has the following from the Rav. When it says, Hechaltsu me'itchem, Hechaltsu, arm, Chalutzim, or we call the pioneers, but Hechaltsu here means to arm. Said the Rav, if you ask me, how do I, a Talmudic Jew, look upon the flag of the state of Israel? Has it any halachic value? I would answer plainly. I do not hold at all with the magical attraction of a flag or similar symbolic, symbolic ceremonies. Judaism negates ritual connected with physical things. Nonetheless, we must not, must not lose sight of the law in the Shulchan Aruch, Yaradeh 364, to the effect that one who has been killed by a non-Jew is buried in his clothes so that his blood may be seen and avenged, as it says, I will hold innocent, but not in regard to the blood they have shed. In other words, the clothes of the Jew acquire a certain sanctity when splattered with the blood of a martyr. How much more is this so of the blue and white flag, which has been immersed in the blood of thousands of young Jews defending the country and the population, religious and irreligious alike. The enemy did not differentiate between them. It has a spark of sanctity that flows from devotion and self-sacrifice. So the Rav, and I think it's in the Chamesh Drashos, said that the Israeli flag doesn't have an intrinsic sanctity. Israeli flag is not a holy object. It doesn't go and shame us when it gets worn out. On the one hand, we reject that. But on the other hand, the symbolism of the Israeli flag is that it is saturated in the blood of the Jews who fought, who died to defend it. And just like the halacha is throughout the millennia, that a Jew who's murdered al Kiddush Hashem does not get a tahara and is not buried in tachrichim, but is buried in their bloody clothing, which we believe goes with them to Shamayim and argues for their, for their case that they died al Kiddush Hashem and reminds us to avenge their blood, that imagery is also 
contained within the Israeli flag. And he continues, the Rav was once visited by a student who served in the IDF, who asked the following question. He worked in the tank division and his job was cleaning and maintaining the tanks. Often his uniform would get covered in oil and grime. Did he need to change clothes before reciting the afternoon prayer? Since the donning of proper attire is a prerequisite for prayer. He emphasized it would be possible to do so, but it would be quite inconvenient and difficult. The Rav looked at him in amazement and replied, Why would you need to change? You are wearing Big Day Kodesh holy clothes. The image of the IDF soldier in their uniform, they wear that uniform not for aggressive wars, but rather to defend the Jewish people, to defend the Jewish values. Because they wear it for that reason, those are Big Day Kodesh. And that is what the, uh, the Rav brings to mind in the section of the Heichal Tzu. Arm yourselves on Hashim Latzava, a Jewish Rav, Rav Aviner, deals with this uh, tshuva, whether a soldier who receives his gun should make a shechianu on the gun. Do you make a bracha? And he dealt with this again when Israel took hold just uh, this year. Israel took uh, eight, um, not F-15s, new, the new version of these mighty, what are they? 35. F-35s? These mighty warplanes. Um, should, should the prime minister or the chief rabbi of the, of the army make a bracha of shechianu? Rav Aviner concludes, yes. And he says, for a Jew to hold a gun is not an aggressive act of violence, but rather when one looks in the context of Jewish history, how many, how long, we did not have access to weapons and uniforms with an organized army, with, an, with a land, with sovereignty. We were unable to defend ourselves. We did not instill that fear in the eyes of others. One, one who can makes a bracha of Shechianu, Heichatzu me'itchem anashim latzava. The battle against Midian. Moshe rebukes the officers. We defeat Midian. We collect the spoils of the war. And here, Elazar HaKohen tells the men who come home, what do you do? Among the spoils we conquered, there was no flat screen TV. We didn't, we didn't recover all of their uh, technology. What did we get? What were the spoils of war at that time? The kitchen utensils. We got their pots and their pans. You know, you didn't go to, to Home Goods or uh, wherever to buy Bed Bath & Beyond. If you had that, it was handmade, hand-fashioned. It was a lot of work. Those were indeed valuable spoils and booty of war. So they recovered it. Only problem is, it's treif. It's not kosher. The Midianites did not keep quad kosher or any version of kosher. So this is the origin of the Allah about how to kosher. Says the Torah on page 906 in the middle of the page. Whatever absorbed non-kosher taste through fire, then it has to pass through fire. Libun. And and then it has to be immersed in a mikvah. And whatever absorbed non-kosher taste, not through fire, but through liquid, how do you purge it of its taste? Through liquid, namely hagala. And so on and so forth. So here you have the origin both of how to kasher a utensil, hagala, libun, libun kal, libun chamur, and the mitzvah of tvila. It's a machlokis whether... The, the Rambam holds that tefillah is the Rabbana, and others hold tefillah to dip utensils in a mikvah. Metal utensils is daraisa, glass utensils are darabanan. But this is the origin, certainly of those who hold it's biblical, of the obligation to immerse utensils in a mikvah. I gave a shir to the kola last week. It's online on Yu Torah. A convert, do they have to bring their utensils to the mikvah? 
let's say a convert, before they convert, for six months, they've kashered their kitchen, they have brand new utensils, they're keeping kosher, everything is kosher. But when they convert, now they are a Jew who has utensils that came from a non-Jew. So assuming everything was completely kosher to begin with, but do they have to tovel their... Do we view it as if they are, are a Jew who got utensils from a non-Jew, the non-Jew happened to be themselves? Or do you say no? They continue to own the very same utensils. All that changed is their identity and status, but the relationship to the utensils remains the same, and the obligation only kicks in when you acquire a utensil from a non-Jew. So, believe it or not, that took up a whole hour. That's a fascinating discussion. We also talked about whether a convert can eat their own food from before they converted. If they make dinner Monday night, and they had leftovers, everything was kosher. All the ingredients, the pot, everything was kosher. They convert Tuesday morning, they want to eat the leftovers from Monday night on Tuesday night. What's the problem? Bishal Akum. You're not allowed to eat food cooked by a non-Jew. Is that true for the convert? Can they not eat the food they cooked for themselves? And does their pot, that in which they cooked, have to be koshered because it was used to cook when they were a non-Jew for later a Jew? Again, these are fascinating discussions that all are sourced here in our parsha. They divide up all of the spoils. And here we get to the end of the parsha. B'nai Gad and B'nai Ruvain make this request from God. We're going to come back and see this in a moment. Parsha's Masay. Masay deals mostly with the journeys and the stops, the journeys and the stops. We have the boundaries of Eretz Yisrael, the biblical Eretz Yisrael, with a beautiful map by Art Scroll on page 923. We have the leadership of the Jewish people, the Nesim, page 926. The Levium do not get their own land in the conquest. We've said this several times. The Levium are the original community kolo model. As the teachers and preachers and role models of the Jewish people, we don't want them living segregated and isolated and all by themselves. We want them interspersed within their own people so that they can have that impact on everyone. Nevertheless, it's legislated that they get their own cities, the cities of the Levium. So here we have the laws of the city that has to be designated. Each tribe has to give the cities to the Levium. And then the end of Parshas Masay, we have the halachas of the Are Miklat, the laws of the cities of refuge. The person who murders by accident runs to and gets refuge there. And uh, the, keeping the tribes isolated, not having intermarriage between the tribes. Chazak, Chazak, Venis Chazak. Let's look at the end of Parshas Matos. I want to study the story of B'nai Gad and B'nai Ruvain. It's Perak Lamed Beis, chapter 32, verse 1. Chapter 32, verse 1. U'mikne Rav Hayal of B'nai Ruvain v'le B'nai Gad atzum me'od. Tribes of Ruvain and children of, of, uh, children of Ruvain, the children of God, had tremendous amount of livestock. Great. And they see the land east of the Yardin. The boundaries of Israel, of course, are west of the Yardin. That's why it's called, we don't call it that, but others call it the West Bank. It's not on the west side of Israel. It's the west bank of the Jordan River. That's, to us, part of biblical Israel. We call it a different name. Judea and Samaria, Yehuda and Shomron. Um... So Reuven and God see the land east of the Yardin. Why do they see it? Because that's where they're there. It's already been conquered. And they say, huh, you know, this is a great place for our business. We've got a lot of livestock and we want it to increase. And here east of the Yardin is the perfect land. 
the perfect landscape for our great thriving budding business. So what do they do? They come to Moshe. Via Lazar Kohen, Aaron son Elazar, who's now the Kohen, via Nsiya and to the heads of the tribes, and they say the following argument: These lands that we've already conquered, naming all these cities, huh? They're perfect for livestock, and it just so happens. We have a lot of livestock. So Moshe and Elazar and Nesim, dear leaders, if it is worthy in your eyes, we would love to settle here. I know the master plan was we all go in. I know there's seven years of conquest, seven years of division of the land. We will forego our territory in the land. This land works perfectly for us. This land works perfectly for us. Rashir says, Lashon bitmia. I think Rashi here says, Lashon bitmia. Yeah, Lashon tmiyahu. Moshe is saying with a huge question mark, your bro- let me just understand this, Ruven and God. You like the area that's conquered, peaceful, no threat. You'd like to settle here and build your thriving business. And your brothers should go risk their lives conquering the land of Israel, fulfilling the dream, fulfilling the vision that God set forth for us. And you're going to sit here? I once wrote an essay during another time of Israel's conflict where I said, you know, technically from a purely halachic standpoint, it's true legally our children of Boko Raton are not drafted into the Israeli army. They're not technically Israeli citizens. They're not technically drafted into the Israeli army. But if you analyze it from a halachic perspective and you view the Jewish people with an army in a defensive war in a Mechemes Mitzvah, we all are obligated to participate in the Mechemes Mitzvah. So from a purely legal standpoint, living in Boca outside of Israel, we're exempt from the IDF. We don't have to put on the uniform. We don't have to take the gun. We don't have to risk our life. But from a halachic standpoint... We are not, in fact, exempt. We, legally, Jewishly, are just as responsible. So if we're not going to fulfill that responsibility by dropping what we're doing and going, then we have to do everything we can in every other way, including financially, through uh, Yashar Lachayal and Friends of the IDF and Glenn Galish's incredible local fund. So... The same words continue to echo in our year, ears thousands of years later. It echoes in the ears of our brothers and sisters in Israel whose children fight and who wonder often where we are to at least be supporting them to every degree possible. So these, Moshe turns to Reuven and God and says, that's a nice request. I'm glad you're focused on your business. But do you know that we've got to go risk our lives and fight? You think you can just have the luxury of sitting here? Why are you trying to discourage the heart of the Jewish people from crossing the land? We're about to go in and you're going to send the message, you know what? We're good here. We're fine. We're comfortable. We thought we were going to make Aliyah with you and, you know, and having to go through the hardship. But you know what? We're good right here. Is that the message you want to give? Asks Moshe to Ruvain and God. 
Esa'arts, this is what your fathers did when I sent the Meraglim to go investigate the land. They went and they saw and they came back and they discouraged the people. You know what the result is? We're still sitting here now. And God was enraged. And he swore. Nobody 20 or older who's alive today will get into that land. You cry for nothing. You've discouraged the people. The spies come back. You live in fear. You think I don't have a destiny for you in that land. You're more comfortable where you are. No problem. None of you are ever getting in. You'll die in the desert. The desert was the most depressing place these 40 years. They dug graves every day. They would lie down. They, it was a, they were burying eulogies, funerals, left and right. Left and right. So Moshe's reminding them, haven't we seen this? Haven't we read this book before? Haven't we seen this movie before? Now this is like Miraglim 2.0. We're finally ready to go. And you're going to say you're comfortable here east on the Yardane? With the exception of these two who were loyal to God, we were 40 years in the desert. In place of your fathers, what came? A society, a culture of bad people. They add more to God's wrath against. They didn't appease God, but God just got angrier and angrier. If you will turn away from after him, you will again let it rest in the wilderness and you'll destroy the entire people. You think Moshe is out of patience? This is like the end. We're in the 40th year. They're ready. They've 40 years they've been wandering. They're in the 40th year and he's here we go again. You don't want to go in? Miraglum 2 point. Are you kidding me? Are you joking? Seriously? Did you not see the consequences of the first time we did it this way? You're out of your mind. I'm going through all these psukim, then we'll go back and analyze them. So they approached him and they said, they were not encouraged by his words. I would have said, okay, you know, we tried. Never mind. We're good. We'll go in with you. But not Reuven and God. Very bold, very assertive. So they approached Moshe and they say, we're going to build pens for our flock here, and cities for our children. You know what? You're right. That would be grossly irresponsible of us. So we're going to set up our children. Let me take that back. We're going to set up our business here, and we'll set up our children here. And then we will come into the land. We'll serve in the army. We'll put on the uniform. We'll risk our lives. We'll engage in the conquest with you and then we'll come back. We won't go home till everybody takes their territory. We won't inherit the land across the Yardane. We will forfeit our territory in the land. We'll fight for it. But we'll forfeit it to the other tribes. We'll fight and then we'll come back and live here east of the Yardim. And one of my daughters at our Shabbos table many years ago said a beautiful idea. She said, you know, maybe Reuven and God did a great favor for Moshe. Because by asking for land east of the Yardim, they were expanding the boundary of Israel 
And so it made it that Moshe actually did enter Israel. Moshe, whose life dream was to enter Israel and was denied by God if they would actually live east of the Yardin and expand the boundary of Israel east, then they could make it that Moshe actually did live in, in Israel. A very interesting insight. Moshe himself was not moved by it. So Moshe responds to them. How about that deal? Set up your business, take care of the children, go fight, then come back. Says Moshe, if you in fact do this, you join the army and you come until we conquer our enemy and well, the land will be conquered before God and then you'll return and you will be Nikiim. we're going to speak about this I think on Shabbos the origin of a little something called Maris Ayin and you will be Nikiim me'ashem umi Yisrael. You'll be vindicated from before Hashem and Yisrael. You'll be Nikki, you'll be clean. You'll be beyond reproach. Nobody will suspect you. But if you don't do this, you're sinning against God. Moshe says, no, you know what, deal. If you do it, good, and everyone will understand. If you don't, it's on you. So therefore, it's a deal. Build for your children. And then build your business. And what comes out of your mouth, you should do. We'll do it. You're right, we'll take care of our children, our wives, and our business. And then we'll cross the Yardin, and so on and so forth. The... Um, this is the origin of the halachas of Tanai. Anytime, those who just finished Baba Basu yesterday, the three Bavas, which really once were one Masechta, you can imagine how long that was, the, um, the rules of conditions within contracts, within interpersonal financial matters, are all modeled after Tanai, God, and uh, Ruvain. Hain Kodim Lalav, Tanai Kaful, all of the rules that you have to formulate the condition in a double way. If you do this, this, and if not, not. You can't just say, if you do this, good. You have to formulate the Tanai both ways. So if I sell you my property on a condition, I have to formulate the condition modeled exactly the way that it was formulated here. This becomes the template for how conditions are formulated, negotiations take place within Jewish law. So, hain kodem lalav. First, you have to say, if you do it, good. If not, not. You can't say, if you don't do it, and if yes, yes. Hain kodem lalav. The if yes comes before the if no. And you have to do a tonight kaful. It has to be both. You have to mention both, and so on and so forth. There's other laws that we extrapolate in terms of the template of conditions. Tonight, b'nei God and b'nei Ruvain here. A few comments. Let's go back. First of all, there's a few switcheroos, three things that change here, and that's what I want to spend our time on. Number one, the order. Sometimes Ruvain comes first, and sometimes God comes first. Sometimes Ruvain God, sometimes God and Ruvain. Number two, the way Ruvain and God formulate their requests is very different than the way Moshe responds to it. And then when Ruvain and God accept Moshe's formulation, they accept it the way Moshe formulated it, not the way they originally posited it. Anyone notice what that difference is? First they talked about their business, then their children. Moshe says, no problem, set up for your children, then your business. And when they say they're ready, they say, we'll do our, our children, then our business. And what's the third thing? 
We didn't actually read all the way till there. But if you read, when Moshe makes the deal with them, what does Moshe say? It's Pasuk. Pasuk Lamed Gimel, verse 33, page 914. What does Moshe say? Vaitain lahem Moshe levnegav levnev ruvein ve lachatsi shevet menasheh. Oh, where'd they come from? All this time, it's Reuven and God who want to settle east of the Yardane. And at the end of the whole deal, when they're wrapping the whole thing up and they're about to sign on the deal, Moshe says, no problem. Reuven, God, hey you, Menashe. Half of Menashe, you're going with them east of the Yardane. They, Menashe, who, what, what? We didn't request that. Where does Menashe come from? Menashe don't advance the request with Reuven and God. Here, it seems like Moshe is assigning them. Where does Menashe come from? So let's start with the third question and we'll work our way backwards. Where does Chatsi Shevet Menashe come from? So here we turn again to Rabbi Salavichik Chumash. And here in the new Rav Chumash he says the following. Great insight. Here it is. Um, by including half the tribe of Menashe let me go back the tribes of Reuben and God requested permission from Moshe to settle on the east bank of the Yardane instead of crossing with their brethren to take shares of Eretz Yisrael proper at first Moshe expressed anger but after negotiating with them they promised to fulfill their share of responsibilities in fighting the necessary battles to acquire the land Moshe reluctantly agreed to their request but included one half of the tribe of Menashe in the agreement by including half the tribe of Menashe, Moshe was personifying his role as a leader whose primary objective is to unify his people and solidify them into a cohesive nation. By dividing the tribe of Menashe, half settling on the east bank of the Yardane together with the two tribes of Reuven and Gad, and the other half on the west bank in Eretz Yisrael proper, he was guaranteeing a link between the two sides of the Yardane. If one brother is on the east and the other is on the west, there would be constant communication between them. If a father's on one side and a child on the other, there would be travel between them and concern for each other's welfare. This would enhance the unity between the twelve tribes and ensure the unity of Klal Yisrael. So Moshe did this as a strategy. All along he's negotiating, finally he gives in, Reuven and God, no problem, go east of the Arden, hey you, Menashe, half of you, come with me, you're also going there. Reuven and God, he couldn't divide in half because they both wanted to bring their entire nation. Menashe, who was very happy to go into Israel, Moshe divides them. Because by dividing them, he is preserving the communication, the integration, the connection, the unity of the Jewish people. When you divide a tribe in two, it means that you're breaking the family up. Siblings, parents, and children, they'll continue to visit, communicate, the commerce, everything will go. The great fear was if you put two tribes east of the Yardin and you put the other ten inside, they'll be two separate nations. They'll break up ultimately into two different people. By dividing Menashe, you could preserve them to be, to be one. The Ramban has a different take. The Ramban on Pasuk Lamed Gimel writes, Mitchul abo lefanu sheva Menashe, aval kashachila kaharetz l'shnei ashvatim, rosh yeretz gedol yosem in aroi lehem. Ubikesh mishayirtz alas nacheli mahem. Moshe was reluctant, but when he finally agreed, he saw the land that they requested was enormous. And there was plenty of space for more than just Ravain and God. So he said, anyone else want? 
והיו אנשים משבע מנשה שיוצאו בו, אולי אנשי מקנה היו, ונעשו להם אחר כאן. So there were people from Menashe who said, yeah, we're in, we'll also go there. We also have Mikna, we're in the same business. And that's a good place for us. And the Ramban goes on to talk about why it was only half of Menashe, not all of Menashe, because of the way the Shevet of Menashe was structured. So the Rav says that Moshe did this by design. That's why you don't see it come up till the end. The Ramban says, no. At the end, when Moshe sees there's plenty of room left over, he offers it to anyone else who wants it too. And, and some of Menashe took him up on it. The Nitziv is in his Hamik Davar. The article quotes this here in the bottom. The Nitziv says that Moshe knew within Menashe there were exceptional leaders. There were great role models. And in order to make sure that Reuven and God would continue to have positive influences on their life, that's why he took out of Menashe, Chatzi Menashe, he extracted people he thought would be good role models, and he said, your job is to be on Shlichut. You have to go to Chutz Laaretz. True, you didn't ask to live in Chutz Laaretz, but your role models for those who insist on being there. What can I tell you? I wish Reuven and God came into Israel with us, but... Financially, they're prospering on the east of the yard and they want to stay there. You, half of Menashe, you could be their role models and teachers. Therefore, you, I'm assigning to live there as well. So that's the third question. Why did we see Menashe? Who, who talked about Menashe? Where did Menashe come from? We saw three separate explanations of that. But we talked about also a difference between the order. Sometimes it says Reuven first, sometimes it says God first. So let's go back to Perak Lamed Bey's Pesach Aleph, beginning of this section. Page 9-10. So it starts off, it says, Mikna Ravai Levnei Ruvain Levnei Gad. And then the next Pasuk, Vayavo Bnei Gad, Ubnei Ruvain. So one Pasuk to the next, we switch the order. Which is it? Says the Ibn Ezra, Levnei Ruvain, Kihu Ben Agvira. Ruvain is mentioned first because Ruvain is the stronger one. Mighty. Makom Mikna Kisham Meretov. They want to go to a place where there's Good grazing. So now why in the next Pasuk? If Reuven is mentioned first because they're the stronger ones, why in the next Pasuk is God mentioned first? Because true Reuven was the stronger one, but God were the brains behind the operation. They were the ones who thought of the idea to begin with. God were the ones who had the initiative to come and to ask for it. The Kliyakar has a different interpretation. Look at the Kliyakar. Pasuk Beis, Reuven's older than God. The real question is the second time. Why does it mention God first? That it should mention Reuven first makes sense. Reuven's older. You go in chronological order. So why in the second Pasuk does it mention God? Because God had more cattle, more livestock. Both were in the same business. The younger brother God was more successful. God had a bigger problem. They had more invested in livestock. They needed that land. So even though Reuven was older, Reuven maybe even was stronger, God was more successful. They were in the same business, but God was more successful. They had more at risk. There, their quest went more. Vani Omer Shim Kenu, Vada Lobne Tsaran Kovtu Barosh, Kim Mitoch, Rum Levavo Kovtu Daber Barosh, Lufne Bene Ruvena Bachor, Kikach Teva Ha Usher, 
Shenosen rum lev lebaalav v'ashir hediot kofets barosh v'yane azos loyashem ne kolish eino cholik kavod lebachor v'lo l'shum bale hamala hamitis bechashvam k'aydei osher who misromim. Says the Kliyakar, a great insight. Why did God speak first? You know why? Because the people who have more money think they're better than everyone else. He had no respect for his older brother. My brother's older than me, but I've got more money. I'm more accomplished. I have a bigger house. I have a larger portfolio. I have more wealth. So therefore, even though in the rules and the hierarchy of respect, I should defer to my brother, but I've got more money. So therefore, I go first, says the Kliyakar. So when the story is introduced, it's introduced to Mikne Rav Hayal of Ruven of Negad, says the Kliyakar. Story is introduced with Ruvain first. Why? Ruvain's older, chronological order. But now when it comes time for the speaking, for their advancing their argument, so God jumps to speak first. Why? He has no respect. Really, he should defer to his older brother. But, says the Kliyakar, Teva, the nature of people with money is that it breeds arrogance, and they think that their money puts them at a higher level. They makes them better than those who are older than them, than those who are smarter than them, than those who are more accomplished than them. And they elbow their way in to be able to f- talk first. I'm sure you all know the golden rule. You know the golden rule? The golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rule. <laughs> That's the golden rule. <laughs> so B'nai God thought they could dictate to others and bully others they could elbow their way in, even above, even advance of their older brother, before whom they should have been showing the respect. There's a long, long kliyaka here. It's worthwhile to read it all, but we don't have time. The Ramban also deals with our question. Writes the Ramban, Hiktim akasu b'nei ruven b'pasuk rishon, u'mikne rava y'levnei ruven le'gad, ki'u b'chor, that makes sense. U'ben ha'gvira, he's stronger. So both at the beginning and the end, Reuven comes first, and that makes sense because he's older. But says the Ramban, in the middle, God keeps coming first. Because they spoke first. They were stronger. They weren't afraid. One might have thought, you know what? Where is the IDF going to protect you? In the land proper. You want to settle east of the Arden, you're going to be on your own. Who's your army? Who's going to protect you? God says, I'm not worried about that. We're our own army. Because God, our Giborim, they're strong. Moshe suspected, why do you want to be east of the Arden? You're cowards. The Meraglim, the Meraglim projected fear in you. That when you go to Israel, they're giants. You'll never defeat them. You're afraid, so you want to go east of the Arden. To which they respond, no, no, no. We're not afraid. We'll go fight with you. And we're so strong, we don't need your army. We can be here east of the Arden on our own. So Reuven and God keep switching the order. We saw three different understandings of why. Either Ibn Ezra, the Kliyakar, and the Ramban. The last thing I want to end with is really, I think, the most important message of this entire section of Reuven and God, aside from the image, the notion that our brothers can't fight while we sit comfortably, while we have the luxury, we have to do what we can, contribute what we can, serve if we can, and so on and so forth, a message that resonates until today. But the other message I think that resonates until today is the switch in the order of the way Reuven and God advance their request and the way that Moshe responds to them. Right? They say, they say, Gidros so nivne 
we'll set up our business, and then we'll set up our children, and then we'll come in the land. And when Moshe responds, he says, You'll set up your children, and then you'll set up your business, and then you'll come up in the land. This very subtle, if, if I didn't point it out, you might not even notice it, there's very subtle difference in, in the order. But the subtle difference was intentional and by design. And why was Moshe, why did Moshe feel a need to rebuke them in this very subtle, nuanced way? And I think the reason is, if you read the section carefully, you see that for Moshe, this was not tangential to the story. This was the story. What was their motivation, Ruven and God? Why did they want to settle east of the Yardin? Because Mikna Rav God. They saw the land east of the Yardin. It was perfect for their business needs. Eretz Miknehi, to land for livestock. In other words, Moshe saw in Ruven and God something that made him very afraid. They put their own professional ambition ahead of their children, ahead of their community, ahead of their people. Rather than be unified and united with the nation and go into Israel, rather than selflessly do what it takes, Messias Nefesh, to fight for Israel, rather than be accessible to their children and put their children's interests first, Reuven and God, what was their calculus? Nikneram. Not, how do I be part of a people? Not, how do I raise my children on the proper path? Nikneram. Professional ambition. Moshe saw the, saw the professional ambition. He saw the concern for their materialism. And he was afraid. He was worried. And when he heard the order in which they put it, that really scared Moshe. Moshe sees this attitude. And he says, You're going to destroy the whole nation. And maybe destroying the whole nation is not that you're not going to come in. Destroying the whole nation is your emphasis on materialism. Destroying the whole nation is your skewed priorities. So he gives this subtle rebuke. And he says, the Medrash here, Medrash Rabbah writes, Reuven and God were more, more worried about their money than their children. Make the core the core, and the secondary the secondary. First build cities for your children, and only then make pens for your, only then invest in your, in your, uh, in your business. You know, another one of our avos are described as mikne rav. They had a lot of livestock, a, a very thriving business, and yet they did not receive criticism. Anyone know who it was? Avram Avinu. That was a good hint, no, Gigi? Avram Avinu. It says, Avram was very laden, he was very heavy, with livestock, silver, and gold. And saw a beautiful pshat. Avram, it mentions first his name. Avram kaved ma'od b'mikneh. Avram was Avram. He also happened to have mikneh. But when it comes to Reuven and God, it says, mikneh hayal Reuven legad. They had mikneh. What defined them? The mikneh is what defined them. The mikneh is who they were. They saw it not just, this is my profession, which empowers everything else in my life, but for them, my life is all about my profession. They confused earning a living with living. So Avram is La Avram Kaved B'mikneh. He's Avram, first and foremost. And then he happens to have great wealth. 
for them, Nikneha, the wealth to find them. The wealth to find them. You see this also at the very end of the parsha. We'll end with this. At the very end of the parsha, it says that they in fact come in, they conquer the land. Half of Menashe get their area. Yair ben Menashe halach vayalkodes chavoseim. Yair, the son of Menashe, goes and he conquers vayikra esana chavos Yair. And he calls, he, he names the place where they are, the chavos of Yair. These are the um, areas of Yair. Novach halach vayalkodes kenas ves benoseah. Novach goes and conquers. And Vayikrala Novach Bishmo. Novach calls it in his name. So Yair names the place he conquers Chavos Yair, places of Yair. Novach names the places he conquers Novach. Yet when it comes to Novach, it says Novach named it after himself. Didn't Yair also name it after himself? So Chazal, Yair had no children, Rashi says. That's why he calls them Chavos Yair. He can't memorialize himself through continuity of children and grandchildren. He names the city. That's what memorializes him. Chazal are critical of Novach and not of Yair. What's the difference between them? Because Yair called them Chavos Yair. He says, I'm Yair. Whether I have cities, I don't have cities, wealth, poverty, my life, my identity is my identity. I'm Yair. These are the Chavos Yair. But Novach named the place Novach. I'm synonymous with my, with my property, with my real estate. Take away the real estate, you've taken away me. Take away the wealth, I'm a nobody. I think the lesson of the whole second half of the Pasha, the story of Reuven and God, the story of Yair and Novach is, the contrast of Reuven and God and Avram, the message is, nothing wrong with having wealth, nothing wrong with being professionally ambitious. However, never confuse our priorities and the hierarchy of our goals and never mistake our identity with what we have. We have an independent identity defined as our spiritual uh, selves. And then we can happen to have those things. We should never confuse our identity with being wrapped up in those very things. Have a great week.